And we are learning that 1 Corinthians is a letter written by an early church leader named Paul to a small house church in the Greek city of Corinth, which was a Roman colony in the Roman Empire. And we're also learning that even though this house church of about 60 or 70 believers in Jesus, even though they lived in a very different culture than Columbus, Ohio, 2019, there are many things that we share in common culturally with them. So, for instance, last week we learned that Corinth had a version of spirituality much like we have today. And so when Paul speaks into that spirituality and gives us a vision of what true spirituality is in God, it's as if he's speaking right to us. It's as if he's walking down the book section of spirituality and religion And he's saying, I see that you're very spiritual. But can I connect that spiritual urge that you have to the true and living God? So it's very much an overlap that I find fascinating and helpful. It's like he's addressing us in this letter. And this morning is no different. In our passage, Paul is going to talk about the temptation to elevate human leaders to the place of God. Corinth had an ancient form of celebrity worship syndrome. And that is a real thing, by the way. Celebrity worship syndrome. Look it up. It does exist. And it was seeping into their church life and how they viewed their pastors. We do the same thing. I recently saw a celebrity pastor fantasy draft. It's behind me. I mean, that's a joke. It's a straight-up joke. It's a a satire. But you're laughing because it strikes a nerve. (laughs) It's somewhat accurate. So what Paul does... As he says, our tendency, what does what Paul does is he takes this tendency to elevate human leaders to the place of God. And he speaks into that. He pinpoints the issue. He says, this is something that you're getting from your environment, from Corinth, that is not godly. And so he pinpoints it and then he speaks into it. And so what does he have to say? Let's just read together what he says and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to speak to us this morning. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is God's word. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way for when one says i follow paul and another i follow apollos are you not being keyword here merely human what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he 
who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we wouldn't just understand truths and accumulate data for our theology of you, but instead would you penetrate to our hearts so that we would encounter you and be changed by you, by what we learn. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So whenever I return to my hometown and visit my family in Muncie, Indiana, I instinctually start feeling and acting like my 17-year-old self. Do you guys, can you guys relate? Um, uh, it's crazy. I can't explain it, but it feels like 20 years, 20-plus years of hard-won growth and maturity and wisdom. It just sort of seeps out of the car as I'm driving towards Muncie, you know, in that three-hour drive. It's all gone, and I'm right back to where I was when I, when I left my home. When I graduated. So I started acting like really selfish around my parents, around my sister, like when I was 17. I get snarky like when I was 17. So much so that Josie kind of looks at me throughout the whole time we're visiting and is like, Who are you? Like, I did not date this version of Joe. <laughs> I did not marry this version of Joe. Who are you? Like, what is this? Well, I'm relieved to know that this is fairly common. I hope it's common in this room. Otherwise, I feel pretty exposed. (laughs) Family systems therapists, they love to point out this reality. That our family of origin has the greatest earthly influence on us. Isn't that a daunting thought? Our family of origin has the greatest earthly influence on us, hands down. And you may think that you're free from that influence but then you return home from th- for Thanksgiving, right? And it's like you pick up this script and you start playing your role in that family drama or that family comedy, whichever it is, drama, comedy. Aren't they the same in the end? Well, it often feels like, speaking personally, that there is more hack in me than there is Jesus in me. Let me say that again. It often feels like There is more hack DNA in me and family of origin stuff in me than there is Jesus in me. Why is it that Jesus doesn't magically change us into his image when we start following him? Amen? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about how often Christians don't look like Jesus even though they follow him. Our neighbors don't know Jesus, but they're often more moral than we are. They're more emotionally mature than we are. uh, They have have all kinds of growth that we don't have. Their concerns seem to be more aligned with the concerns of God than our concerns. And they don't know Jesus. And he points that out, Lewis does, and he simply asks the question, why is that? 
Well, the Apostle Paul is going to name this reality as well. He says to the Corinthian home church in the passage you just heard read, despite all your claims to maturity, you're acting like like infants. Now, he isn't mad at them. He's actually quite tender. Because he compares himself, when you look at verse 2, and he compares his ministry to that of a nursing mother. And so he's not mad, but he is saying truth in a tender way. I had to nurse you. And still, he says, I have to nurse you. Despite your claims to maturity. So I love the honesty that the Bible has about this very struggle that I'm pinpointing. Paul does it first. His diagnosis is super clear. He's basically saying, you look right now more like Corinth than Jesus. You look more like the city that you're in than the church that you're called to be. The way you're acting and the way that you're uh, uh, living out community has more to do with the kingdom of Rome than it does the kingdom of Christ. How so? Well, we've been learning a lot about Corinth in ancient um, in ancient Greece. Corinth was a celebrity culture, and so there's a couple of reasons how the city of Corinth was sort of infiltrating and seeping into the community of Jesus in Corinth. And one was the celebrity culture that they had. Uh, this celebrity culture valued spin more than substance. In fact, many scholars point out the similarities between ancient Corinth and our current postmodern or hypermodern culture today. It's like we did a complete full circle. We don't value truth, we value entertainment. Isn't that true? I mean, we will rise and give a standing ovation to an entertaining speech, even if it's false. And so also in ancient Corinth. Okay, so 30 years ago, 30 years ago, media scholar Neil Postman wrote this. Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. The same could be said of Corinth in Paul's day. And it was this celebrity culture, this sort of spin celebrity culture, that was being imported into the church in verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. What he's saying is you're acting like you don't have the Holy Spirit. You have it, but you're acting as if you're just merely human. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, he says, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's saying there's more. I'm seeing more Corinth than Christ and the way that you're acting. Celebrity culture does not have a place in the church, but it was it was it was foundational to their community life because apparently in verse 4 one was saying I follow Paul another was saying I follow Apollos and they were staking claim to these church leaders which brings me to the second thing that was happening in Corinth second thing we need to know is that there was another cultural reality that was playing out in the church and it was the patron client relationship 
We don't really have that in our day as much. But back then, this is when clients or those lower on the ladder would attach their loyalties and their service to a wealthy and powerful person called a patron. And that patron would take care of them. And that client would gain the status of their patron. And so, as I said, uh, one, one ancient writer who was in Corinth at that time said, everybody is like ivy, trying to find something to climb up. And that was going on in the ancient world. I'm sure it's not too hard to think of contemporary examples of that. But it was way more intense back then. It was way more intense. I, I like to think of the Godfather. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a patron, and then everybody is sort of finding their pecking order in relationship to that patron and doing everything they can because they have the status of that patron, and that's how they were. That's how that's the air that they breathe in ancient Corinth. And then, yeah, they encounter Jesus. And they get involved in the community of Jesus. And all of a sudden they see their pastors, Paul, and then this, this, this man after Paul, Apollos. And some are like, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. And that creates jealousy, apparently, according to Paul. And it creates strife or fighting. Imagine a church of 60 We do this too. We elevate our leaders to an unhealthy place. It's like we say with our lips, Jesus is our Savior, but we act as if our leaders are our saviors. Paul says, when you do this, especially in the church, it's Corinthian, not Christian. It's the way of the world, not the way of love. You all know the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians. Many of us had it read in our weddings. The way of love, chapter 13. A lot of what Paul says positively about love, he expresses negatively in this passage. Strife and jealousy. And so what Paul is saying to us this morning, what God is saying through Paul this morning, is that the way of the world is strife and jealousy, celebrity culture, elevating your leaders. The way of love is something entirely different. The way of love is something entirely different. And so what's Paul's answer to this issue? Well, I love his method. Because he doesn't say, stop being jealous. Which is the easy thing to do. If you're a parent, you kind of understand this impulse. You see something and you're like, stop doing that. Paul sort of takes about 10 steps back and instead of saying, just stop doing that, stop fighting, stop being jealous, stop elevating leaders, he he does something entirely different. It's instructive to us all. He basically says, recenter yourself. Put God in the middle. Your orbit is all confused. You're in the middle of the orbit. And God is swinging around you. You need to stop. Put God in the center. We'll call this gospel recentering. How does Paul Paul recenter them on God? Well, he gives them a God-centered vision of the church in this passage. He actually calls the church God's farm in this passage. He says, you are God's field. 
And so he's building an image for, the, for this young church. He's saying, he's saying, you know what you guys are? You guys are God's farm. Okay? And, and so he's, he's recentering them. And look how he decentralizes his ministry and the ministry of Apollos in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He is, he is asking, he's saying, look, you're into me and you're into Apollos. He decentralizes. He, he takes, he says, you're all wrong. You need to, you need to pull us away from the, your center and you need to replace us with God. Paul doesn't say, stop putting your leaders in a pedestal, he says, put God in the center. And that's a way different way to approach this issue. The church will be merely human so long as God is not in the center. What does a God-centered church look like? Paul tells us three things in this passage. A God-centered church has what we'll call specialized ministry. Paul, as I said, uses a farm analogy and says that he and Apollos had special jobs. But both of them, notice, were equally used by God and equally important. So if you take a look down at the text again, you'll see it. You'll you'll see in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul was an evangelist. Apollos was an educator. And what's astonishing is that this text tells us that one is not above the other. The Lord loves to give all of us specialized ministry roles that are all on the same ground. So even as I say that, be thinking, what is it that God has called me to do in the community of Jesus? And don't you dare think that your calling is in any way inferior to someone else's calling. The Lord loves to specialize. He loves specialization. Notice he calls his ministry and the ministry of Apollos the Lord's assignment. He says in verse 5, we are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The Lord, Paul is saying, is like a good coach who looks at everybody who's on the roster and he places these players exactly where they ought to be. And I'm a huge, I'm a huge Liverpool football fan, okay? And I have a lot of trust in Jurgen Klopp, our coach. But there's sometimes when he puts people in positions and I'm just like, you're crazy. But it ends up working brilliantly because he knows what he's doing. And the same is true of the Lord with you. He's calling you to get off of the sideline and putting you in a place in in this community of Jesus. And it's a specialized task. And it's important, whatever it is. Okay, so that's number one. The second thing we see about a God-centered church is that a God-centered church attaches significance to every ministry role. So Paul says that he and Apollos are fellow workers of God. That's an amazing statement in verse 9. 
fellow workers with God. And notice, too, how God pays his workers according to their labor. Do you see that? He says in verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one. They're equally significant. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say each will receive his his, his wages according to his success. Or according to their production. Or according to the quality. A God-centered church attaches significance to the ministry itself. And that's unbelievably countercultural in that day and in our day today. So let me just encourage you, whatever you're doing in a ministry team, whatever it is that you're called to right now, think about this. God is not paying you according to your success, even the quality of your work. You're just getting up and you're doing it. And there's a blessing in that. There's a freedom in that. All right. And the the last thing that we see that Paul says about a God-centered church is that it has servanthood ministry. Servanthood ministry. And this, my friends, is what cuts at the root the celebrity complex that we all have. When we understand that a God-centered church has leaders who are servants... And there, there, the, the whole logic behind elevating a pastor or a church leader or a teacher to some elevated, exalted status, it, the whole logic just crumbles to the ground. Paul describes himself and Apollos as servants. He says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants. That word that he uses there is diakonos or, or deacon. A word that means in that day a table servant. Someone who served you your food. Paul is saying that, I mean, Paul is an apostle. The highest authority that you could possibly have in the early church and even today. We read his words as holy writ. And he says, I'm a table servant. If anybody deserves to be exalted as a leader, it's Paul. And he says, I'm a table servant. If anything happened through my ministry, it's because the food was good, not because I'm amazing. I'm a table servant. Just like a server at a nice restaurant should never take credit for the food they deliver. This is a point by N.T. Wright. Paul doesn't take any credit for any good that happens in the church. That's a God-centered view of the church, amen? I mean, that is unbelievable. I'm a table servant. And so are you. Josie and I, we love, our favorite restaurant is Third in Hollywood. We love that place. Do you know this about us? If you, if you don't know about us, you don't know us well enough yet. Because we love that place. We go there as often as we can. A couple weeks ago, we were there, uh, and I did something I never do, and I ordered the, the Neiman Ranch steak. Oh, man. Has anybody had that thing? Oh my gosh. The server brought this to our table. 
And then he later looked at it and he said, how's that taste? It was late in the night. And he said, I think I'm going to eat that later. <laughs> and I loved that moment because the server and the served for a split moment were on equal grounds. He was just like me. He didn't make the food. He simply delivered it. And the same is true of all of our ministry. We are not at the point. Yes, God uses our gifts. Yes, God uh, honors us because of our stories and uses our stories. So this isn't a denigration of your personhood or your story. But it is a humility that happens when you understand that anything good that happens out of your ministry is the Lord's doing. It comes from His kitchen. That's a healthy way to be in the community of Jesus. It's a very healthy way to be in the community of Jesus. We are not the point. The grace of God is the point. See, for Paul to eradicate the cult of celebrity in the church, he needs to remind them of how radically God-centered the church is, and we too need that recovery. Uh, The image that Paul leaves us with is the farm, and then next week we're going to look at another image he uses, which is a building. He says, you are God's field. And, and listen, when he says you are God's field, I think there's more than meets the eye when we first hear that. Because if you remember, all throughout the Old Testament, God is promising a land. God is promising the promised land. God is promising um, a, a piece of land for the church and, and for God's people. And here at this text, Paul is saying, basically, you are that land, people. You are his field. Which gives us the highest amount of dignity while also properly humbling us that we are not the point, but God's grace is. And so let's not elevate anybody in this church community or outside of it, especially as the temptation is real with podcasting and with book publishing. Let us not elevate anybody to the level of God and the work of God. A God-centered church will not do that. Anthony Thistleton, he says that this passage is brilliant because it reveals two errors that we make continually in the church. And the first is this. Either we denigrate leadership in the church or we exalt leadership in the church. Both are wrong. We can't denigrate leadership because this passage gives us a dignified view of leadership and gifting and using our gifts. Watering, as Paul puts it. Planting. Whatever it is you're called to do. It is an assignment from God. That is an inherent dignity that all of you have. So we must not denigrate church leadership. But at the same time, we cannot elevate it. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? He says, according to God's grace and in reference to God's grace, he says, we are nothing. And so we cannot elevate leaders either. And those are our two errors that all of us are tempted to do. In the church and in your home groups, it is tempting to have too high a view of your leaders. They cannot and should not withstand that pressure. They are not Jesus. And I'll say this before we wrap up. I think we're all called to be ministers. Here we read about Paul's unique ministry, Apollos' unique ministry. 
But we are all called to be ministers. We are the priesthood of all believers. And so I want you to allow this passage to lead you to a place of humble boldness. Humility because God is calling you even though you're a mess. (laughs) Okay? His mission He's entrusting with you and your story. That's humbling. But yet, bold because He calls you His fellow worker. You are God's colleague. And that gives you a boldness that nothing else will. I mean, we all know the difference... Say amen if you agree with this, okay? We all know the difference between a salesperson who believes in their product and a salesperson who doesn't. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Amen? Like, we get a lot of solicitors to our door, and like, all of them don't believe in their product. And that's a hard sell. You just kind of are looking at them and you're like, man, I just want to give you like a drink because you're not into siding. I know you're not into siding. <laughs> Windows are not your thing. I get it. And you don't really think these windows are the best, right? This happens all the time. But you walk into a Tesla store, and they're just standing there like, yeah, this product's amazing. I don't need to sell it to you. You know, same is true of restaurants. You can tell a restaurant is desperate when there's all kinds of advertising, and you get a mailer every other week and free stuff, versus restaurants that are just like, yeah, we're a hole in the wall, and we don't need to advertise. That's a boldness, right? That's a security because they understand what they are delivering is solid. It's good. And that's the ministry that we have in Jesus. Okay? (laughs) We have a boldness that no one else has because we are God's colleague. We are his table servant. What we are bringing is the Neiman Ranch steak. And all that steak needs is a little bit of salt and a little bit of pepper. No steak sauce. The gospel is that good. I mean, I think this reveals our belief in the gospel. Do we believe it is good? And when we do, friends, we will have the posture that Paul has here. A God-centered community of Jesus. Uh, Lord, we come to you and we do ask that this would permeate the culture of this church. We would not elevate leaders to a place that is higher than is than is higher than is healthy and right, but at the same time we would honor leadership and we would pursue leadership, and we would use our gifts as table servants, as servants of you. Lord, we ask that there would be no jealousy or strife in this community, in hope. Would you spare us jealousy and strife because we are so God-centered? Because the work that you are doing is so radical and so good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.